I was thinking uh, this past week uh, on the 21st was our anniversary, and on the 28th uh, was Allison's birthday. And so I've been thinking, you know, there's a question in life that consumes a line of questions that consumes a lot of our time. And, and, and it's the question, uh, how can I be in right relationship? Or how can I find myself in, in good standing? Uh, and you may not realize that that question consumes a lot of your life uh, and that a lot of uh, activity that you're involved in is because of that line of questions. But we ask that question all the time. How can I be in right relationship? Or how can I find myself in good standing with my spouse? with my kids, with my parents, with my neighbors, with my teacher, with my coworkers, with my boss, with the police, with the government, with the bank. The list of blanks goes on endlessly. But there's one of those questions that's by far the most important. And that is how can we be in right relationship with God? How can we find ourselves uh, in good standing with God? And and the difference between all those other fill-in-the-blanks and God is that with my spouse, with, with my kids, with my boss, with whoever I put in as a blank in that question, how can I be in right relationship with them? It's me as an imperfect human trying to be in, in good standing with another imperfect human. But when it comes to God... And when God is the end of that question, how can I be in right relationship with God? It's how can I, as a a sinful, imperfect human being, be in right relationship with a perfect and holy God? It's the most important question that we have to answer in life. And and it's a question that points to uh, our greatest problem in life. And today there are sincere churchgoers who are asking that very question. There are Baptists that are going to church today, and they're asking the question, how can we be in right relationship with God? There's Presbyterians who are going to church today, and they're asking, how can we have a good standing with God? There's Catholics who are going to church today, who are asking, how can we be in right standing with God? In fact, today, somewhere in this world, a child is being offered on an altar in an effort to appease an angry God. Today, someone is inflicting pain and torture upon their body in the hopes that their sacrifice, that their pain will will win for them eternal life, uh, will win the approval of their deity. Somewhere in the world, there's someone who's lying on a bed of nails, someone who's walking across a a hot uh, bed of coals in an effort that their, their bravery will prove to their deity that they are worthy of eternal life. Today, millions are praying towards Mecca. Today, followers of voodoo will will kill a chicken and will put the carcass on an altar in hopes that the gods will smile favorably, favorably upon them. And why? Why all this religious activity? It's because men and woman are desperate to be in right relationship with God. We do what we do in an effort to please, to satisfy, to pacify, to appease, to manipulate God 
to smile upon us. And it's understandable, isn't it? I think everyone who's in this building hopes that they're going to stand before God someday and God is going to tell them that, tell you that you're in right standing with him. And to achieve a right standing with God is the most wonderful news. But the problem, the bad news, is we can't achieve that right relationship. In fact, over the last weeks, in fact, we go, we're going through the letter of Romans. We're in chapter 3, verse 21. Since Romans 1, verse 18, if we had to summarize what we've talked about, it's been sin, sin, sin. If you want to summarize it in two words, bad news. Bad news. When I think of some of the phrases that I've used and Daryl has used and Ben has used over the last five or six weeks of sermons, we've talked about the, the universal problem of sin. We've talked about the utter hopelessness of man and woman apart from Christ. We've talked about how sin has leveled everybody to a level playing field. We've talked about how everyone is unrighteous. Everyone is guilty. The bottom line is that there is a chasm. There is a gap between sinful man and a holy God. And we can't bridge it. On our own, we can't overcome the gap. It's too it's it's too wide. And for 64 verses, Paul has been telling us in Romans that we are sinful, we are unworthy, we aren't righteous. And I don't know about you, but somewhere in those 64 verses, you've been going, okay, Paul, enough. I get your point. I can't tell you how many weeks I looked at the next text in our sermon series and I went, oh, I got to preach on sin again. Paul, we get your point. Or do we? 64 verses on sin. What's your point, Paul? Well, I think he's just trying to paint a realistic picture of the the human condition. But I think even more, Paul realizes this. Unless we understand how desperate our situation in sin is, we will never reach out beyond ourselves to grab onto what God is offering us. And that's the good news. God has done for us that which we're unable to do for ourselves. The temptation over the last weeks, Ben and Daryl, I think we both talked about it separately. And I know for me, as we've gone through these last 64 64 verses, the temptation has always been that when we're in the midst of the bad news, I always wanted to reach ahead and pull some of the good news into the bad news. Kind of to soften the blow. Well, today we are in the heart of the good news. We can be right with God. We can 
have a new beginning. We can have a fresh start. Romans 3 verses 21 through 26, some have said is the very heart of Paul's letter. Some have said it's the greatest paragraph in all of the Bible. Some have said, and I agree with this, that if you can understand these six verses, you will have a grasp on the central message of Scripture. As I consider all that's in these verses, and and turn, turn while I'm talking to Romans chapter 3 verse 21. I almost feel guilty as I'm about to preach on this passage because we are barely going to scratch the surface. It is so rich. It's so deep. And so I've prayed as I have prepared and I'm going to pray now as we hear what God has to say that, that the little that we're going to listen to and, and the, the little scratchings that I'm going to share with you would be what you need to hear this morning. And that God would use the power of his gospel message to change hearts this morning. So let's just bow our heads and and pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, in, in anticipation for what we're about to hear from these six verses, I pray today as I've prayed this week, God, that you would use those things that we look at from these verses. And there's so much more. But God, would you use these truths, powerful powerful, wonderful truths to touch hearts this morning. Stir hearts that are complacent. Bring life to hearts that are dead. God, do this for your glory, for your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is this good news? Verse 21 Paul tells us about this good news. And the good news is this. What we desperately need and we can't achieve for ourselves, God has provided. Look at verse 21. But now, and I'm going to stop there. But now, if you've read our update this week, if you've looked at the Facebook site for Auburn, you've seen the words, but now. Daryl talked about but now several weeks ago. But Now, Paul has gone to great, great lengths to help us to understand that we aren't righteous. Rather, we're guilty. We're deserving of judgment. We're deserving of God's wrath. We're helplessly bound to sin. We're running from God. We're not even searching for Him. And what's God's answer to our total depravity? Does he turn his back and just damn us to hell? These two words, but now, come at just the right time. The difference between heaven and hell hinge on the meaning of these two words. And the good news is that God hasn't given up. He hasn't turned his back. Those two words, but now, assure us that God has provided an answer even for the worst of sinners. It says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God 
has been made known. The righteousness of God. If you remember way back in chapter 1, we talked about the righteousness of God. And I shared with you, it's a really important concept to grasp. In chapter 1, Paul says to the Romans, those who are reading his letter, he says, I'm eager to come to share the gospel. Well, why? Because I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why are you not ashamed of the gospel? Because the gospel is the power of God to save people. Well, how is that possible? And Paul says, because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. And the people that were listening to Paul would have said, ah, exactly. I understand that. And we listen to it and we go, I don't get it. What do you mean the righteousness of God? It's not something that we talk about. Oh, we talk, we use the word righteousness a lot. I'm not sure all of us really understand what the word righteousness really means. But to understand what Paul's original hearers would have known about the righteousness of God helps us to get excited about this good news. And so if you remember when we talked about it, I said that the righteousness of God, if you study the Old Testament, reveals, has three different meanings. The righteousness of God can refer to an attribute of God. So a righteousness of God, his holiness, his justice, his faithfulness. And so he said that in the gospel, a righteousness of God is being revealed. His justice, his faithfulness. But righteousness of God can also refer to a status that's given by God. So we could refer to it as a righteousness given by God. And so in the gospel, what's being revealed is this righteous status that God is willing to give to those who put their faith in Jesus. And then thirdly, the righteousness of God can refer to God's intervention to save his people. And so a righteousness done by God. And so in the gospel, what's being revealed is God intervening to save people who will put their faith in Jesus. And it's that last one that I believe is most strongly being referred to in verse 21. But now, despite the hopelessness of your sin, God's intervention, God's plan to deliver his people, to save those who will put their faith in Jesus, is being made known. And righteousness is our greatest need. And it's our greatest need because we're not righteous on our own. And that might come as really bad news to people. Because there are some who who believe they're righteous because they inherited it by birth. I've been coming to Auburn since I was a baby. I have to be righteous. Some people think righteousness is something that they've earned. They've worked hard. Some are really working hard now, striving for righteousness. And yet what what Paul is saying is that righteousness isn't something that you can gain for yourself. You can't attain a right relationship with God no matter how hard you try. The righteousness you need has to come from outside of yourself. And if you continue in verse 21, it says, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. And Paul isn't bad-talking the law. And we've talked about this for weeks. 
The law reveals the righteousness of God. The law reveals God's righteous standards for human behavior. But Paul's made it very clear that you can't earn a right standing with God by simply observing the law. Because we'll all mess up. We'll all fall short. You can't earn a right standing with God by rituals, by doing observances, by taking part in communion, by having regular membership, uh, regular attendance, by being a member, by tithing, on and on and on. It's not enough. That won't gain you a right standing with God. But all isn't lost. Because verse 21 ends, it says, But now apart from the law, the righteous... The righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. All isn't lost because God has inaugurated a new chapter in salvation history. And it's not something new. It's been part of his eternal plan. It's something that the prophets spoke about. It's something that the Old Testament points to. God has made a righteousness apart from the law, apart from our good deeds, apart from all of our efforts. God has made available the opportunity to have a right standing with him. How do we obtain that right standing? Well, that's what Paul answers in verses 22 to 24. And I want to read verses 22 through 24. And I want to see if you can catch something. So follow along as I read it. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Did you notice anything? Speak up. I missed part. I didn't read the last part of 22b and 23. Because in the original, that's a parenthesis. So you know when you're typing a letter and you want to add a little comment, you put it in brackets, and then you finish the sentence? That's what Paul's doing here. You, you can take that bracket out and, and still finish the sentence, and it makes sense. But Paul, once again, just wants to add a final word, and I think there's more to come, on sin. And so Paul says, there's no difference. All of sin and falling short of the glory of God. Paul wants everyone who's reading this letter to be sure that what he says pertains to you and to me. When it comes to sin, we're all in the same boat. We're all on the same level playing field. We're all sinners and we all need to be saved. Paul says, there is no difference And if you're like me, you just kind of fly by this verse and you don't really think about those words. Understand, contemplate what Paul means. There is no difference when it comes to sin, when it comes to the need of salvation. There is no difference between a bank teller and a bank robber. There is no difference between a surgeon who saves lives and a murderer who takes lives. There's no difference between a photographer of weddings and a photographer of pornography. There is no difference when it comes to salvation. Because Paul says we've all sinned and we all fall short of a standard and that standard's the glory of God. And so we ask, well, what's the, stand, what's, what's the glory of God? What does that mean? 
But what the glory of God refers to is the perfections of God's attributes. And so in a way we can go, well, that's not really fair. How, how are we supposed to compare ourselves to a standard that we, we really can't see? It's hard to understand. But in Hebrews, the writer says that the perfections of God's attributes are clearly seen in the person of Jesus. And so for those of you who are stuck on what I just said about the surgeon being the same as the murderer, we often want to measure ourselves, our goodness, against another human being. And so the bank teller who's comparing themselves to the bank robber can rightly say, well, I'm much better person than the bank robber. But what God is saying is, no, 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 no. Measure yourself against the only true standard. My son, my holy, perfect, sinless son. How do you measure up? Well, obviously I fall, fall, oh, I fall short. All have sinned. There's no difference. We all fall short. Imagine if three of us got up on the, the roof of this, this church and we were on a clear night and we're reaching for the stars. And, and I got up there and the other two are brave to come up there with me. Uh, Helen DeLuna, she came up there with us. Uh, and, uh, and Tim Coles came up with us. And we're all standing on the ceiling, on the roof of the church, trying to reach for the stars. And God says, you know, whoever can reach the star can have a right standing with me. And Helen, being a little shorter than the two of us, but so fit with her new lifestyle, jumps as high as she can jump and doesn't reach a star. Me, with my vertical leap of a couple of inches, doesn't come close. And Tim, so fit, hanging around the Pete's players like he does, jumps so much higher. A chaplain for the Pete's, no less. But still comes far from reaching a star. And that's what Paul's saying. We all fall short. Some may reach higher, but we all fall short of a standard. There's no difference. And so how can we obtain this right standing? Let's look at what we've missed in verses 22 to 24. And in verse 22, Paul says simply, this righteousness, this right standing with God is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. A right standing with God comes by putting your faith in the person and work of Jesus. And and don't get this wrong, faith isn't what saves you. Faith is the means by which we're saved. What saves us is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the object of our faith. And Paul says that this is available to all who will believe. No one's excluded. It doesn't matter who you are, how bad you are, how bad your past is. This offer of a right standing with God is available to everyone who will believe. And let's understand what Paul's saying by the word belief. It isn't just a mental assent to to facts. To believe here means to put your trust in somebody else to do something for you that you couldn't do for yourself. And in this case, it's Jesus. To put your trust in what Jesus did on the cross for you to accomplish what you couldn't do for yourself. That's what Paul's talking about when he says it's available to everyone who will believe. And then we move into verse 24. And... and I like food, and, and I read verse 24, and all I could think of is like the Mandarin buffet. 
and imagine going to the Mandarin buffet and the dessert line, and there's like 25 glorious desserts, and, and you want to tr- take a piece of each one and, and eat it all and, and enjoy each one on its own, but obviously you can't. And so you just take one or two. And, and as I read verse 24 and verse 24, Paul, Paul tells us, what is it that God's accomplished for those who put their faith in Jesus? And to me, it's like going through the dessert buffet and you're just kind of taking a finger swipe of each dessert as you go by. And that's, I, I feel bad because that's what we're going to do with verse 24. But try to understand the richness of verse 24, of what God has done for those of us who have put their faith in Jesus. And in verse 24, Paul says, All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. We're justified. The word comes out of the, the courtrooms of Paul's day. It literally means to be, cl- to, to be declared innocent. That your record is wiped clean and the matter of your record will never come up again. And when it says that God justifies us, that means that God declares us innocent. The sins of our past are wiped away. Our record in heaven is permanently altered. And God sees us and declares us as righteous. And it says we're justified freely. Your your Bible may say we're justified as a gift. The word freely here literally means for nothing, without a cause. That's astonishing. Justification is a free gift from God. It's not something that we've earned. It's not something that we've attained. It's not something that we've achieved. God gives it freely to those who come with empty hands, who understand I got nothing that could ever achieve this for me and puts their faith in Christ and God freely justifies us. And this is solely through his grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. God doing for us what we don't deserve. And that's, that's the doctrine of grace. God saving sinners who deserve condemnation. And it says that it's through the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. And the word redemption, the word redeem, comes from the slave trade of Paul's day. It literally means to, to buy someone's freedom for a price. So throughout history, we've heard some magnificent stories of Abraham Lincoln and, and others who have gone into a slave trading building and have purchased a slave, and the slave has come out, and the the buyer has the paperwork that says, I own this slave. And the slave has asked the owner, and in Abraham Lincoln's case, the slave asked, well, what, what do you want me to do for you? And as the story goes, Abraham Lincoln ripped up the paperwork and said, I bought you to set you free. Go. And it says that we have been redeemed through Jesus Christ, Our sin comes with a penalty. It comes with a price. And that's our problem. We can't pay the price. But the Bible tells us, Paul tells us, that Jesus, by dying on the cross, paid the price for our sin. And by putting our faith in what he's done for us, we are set free. But it leads to one final question. We've got to ask it. How is this possible? 
How can one person pay the price for millions and millions? How can God rightly declare innocent those who are obviously guilty? And we understand that. Because we all cry foul when someone goes through the court system here and is declared innocent or gets set free when we know right well they should spend time behind bars. Why is it that God can take a guilty person and just simply declare them innocent? And the flip side, why does it have to be the way that it is? Why does Jesus have to die? Why does his blood have to be spilt? Why can't God just take us sorry and forgive us our sins? It would make the message of Easter a far, a lot less awkward than it is having to talk about the death and the resurrection of God become man, Jesus. You see, the righteousness of God, and I I said earlier, it's so important to understand the righteousness of God from a human perspective poses a problem for God. Because the righteousness of God says that God is perfectly, uh, has perfect integrity when it comes to his attributes. So God is perfectly just. He is perfectly holy. And what that means is that God can't tolerate sin. God can't allow sin into his presence. He can't turn his back on sin and not deal with it. He can't sweep sin uh, under a carpet. He must deal with it. It must be judged. And we might be going, okay, well, why does he have such a big issue with sin? Why has it got to be that way? Well, let me give you uh, another illustration that maybe would help us to understand. In the hospital. I remember when Lauren was born. So that was the first of our uh, births that we experienced. And got there early. It was to to be a C-section. And they put this gown on me, which barely covered half my back. And I felt so... Here, it's all about me. Obviously, Allison had a few more things to worry about than I did. They put this gown on me. They wheel Allison into the operating room. And they tell me just to stand in the hallway until it's time for me to come in. And I felt so embarrassed standing there in this, you know, whatever I was, goofy thing I was wearing that didn't fit. And so I kind of hid around a corner waiting for them to call me. And the two doctors who were going to perform the C-section, and, and one was a, a guy that I, I grew up with, so I knew it was him, came around the corner. And right where I was standing was the sink. And they started scrubbing their hands. Well, they scrubbed their hands and their arms, like up to about their shoulder for like five minutes. And it, to this day, I, it just... It was amazing how clean they insisted that they be before they put gloves on. And then in the operating room, everything had to be sterile. And we know why it is. Because of contamination. We know the damage that bacteria and contamination can do. And I'm okay with the fact that the surgeons showed their wrath against contamination. And I think you are too. Well, to a much greater degree, that's how God looks upon sin. He knows the contamination and the damage and the infection that sin can do. It, it, it encompasses everything that it touches. Sin has to be dealt with. It has to be eradicated. And God can't do anything else about it because he's perfectly just. However, God loves the sinner. 
God is compassionate. God is merciful. And, and, and so how does he solve this from a human perspective problem of his, his justice, which calls for the, his wrath against sin and his love, which longs for the forgiveness of sinners? And Paul answers that in the last two verses. In 25 and 26. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God's solution is that he offered Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. And some of you might be hearing that word and going, I don't really understand what that means. How is that a solution? Some of your translations will say that God offered Jesus as a sacrifice of propitiation, which probably helps even less of what it means. Those are words that that bring to mind the Old Testament sacrificial system. Once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place where God was said to dwell. And and in that most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant. And, And the Ark of the Covenant, it was a box. And inside the box were the two tablets that contained the Ten Commandments. And on the box was a lid, which was the mercy seat. And on that lid was two angels. One wing... Uh, pointing upwards, one wing pointed to the side. And so once a year, the high priest would go into this place and the understanding symbolically was that God would look down upon the ark and he would see the, the, the law and he would realize how broken and how sinful his people were. And it would remind him that he needs to act in wrath and in justice against the sins of his people. But the high priest would come in with a sacrifice, the blood of a sacrificed animal. And he would sprinkle that blood on the lid, the mercy seat. And symbolically, God would be looking through the wings of the angels down at the mercy seat and would see that sacrifice, that blood that was was to atone for the sin, temporarily turning away God's wrath against sin. Allowing God to to act towards his people in love instead of wrath. But there was a problem with the Old Testament sacrificial system. It only brought temporary forgiveness. It didn't fully deal with the problem of sin. It didn't fully punish sin. It was just the blood of animals. What it did do, though, was point forward to a day where a perfect sacrifice would be made. And so how can God declare the guilty innocent? How can the death of Jesus free millions? Why did God require the death of Jesus? Because when Jesus died on the cross, he became the perfect sacrifice. When his blood was shed, it was like the blood that was shed on the mercy seat, but infinitely more. Because it turned away the wrath of God forever for those who will put their faith in Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, the wrath of God, the full wrath of God for the, for the sin 
that's been committed beforehand, the sin of today, the sin of the future, God's wrath for sin was placed upon Jesus. And when he died, when he shed his blood, it perfectly satisfied the wrath of God. So that today, when we put our faith in Jesus, God declares us righteous on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus. And he can declare us righteous. He can declare us free. He can declare us innocent. And that's the greatest news. Why don't you just close your eyes and just want to close in prayer before we, we go into the time of the table. We don't do this often after a message here and and uh, I realize that after a message, we often do the table and people are rushed out. But I, I really want this morning for you to consider what your standing is with God. Have you been made right through the blood of Jesus Christ? And maybe you're here this morning and you heard this message again. You've heard it over and over and over. And your response is, I'm not ready. You know, I, I think I can improve myself. I can be better. Sad news is you can't. Come to Jesus and be forgiven. Maybe you're here and and you're thinking, my sin is too great. And God is saying, come to Jesus and be forgiven. Maybe you feel like a failure. Maybe you feel unholy. Maybe you're worried you'll just screw things up. God's saying, stop your worrying. Bring yourself as you are. And receive the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads. If you're here this morning and you've heard this and you've heard it and you've heard it and something in your heart is saying, I need to find out more. I want to have this right standing that he's talking about. Would you just slip your hand up? Everyone put your heads down so you're not staring around. I'm not going to make someone embarrass themselves. Is there anyone here and, and you'd really like to know more, to be able to pray that prayer, to accept the forgiveness, to know what it's like to be, be innocent? Is there anyone? Just slip your hand up. You. God, we thank you. For those who have just put up their hand, we thank you for your salvation. We thank you for the blood that was shed on Calvary. We thank you that Jesus has taken our place. God, for those of us who are here, and this is something that we accepted years and years and years ago, restore unto us the joy of our salvation, even this morning. Amen. I'm going to ask the praise team to come on up. I'm going to ask everyone to stand and sing. And there's a couple of you that put up your hand. And I said I wasn't going to embarrass you. But as we're standing and singing, if we can pray with you even right now, I'm going to ask Ben, if you could slip to the back. Allison, can you slip to the back? And can you receive those few people if they're willing to go to the back and maybe just shut the door into the back and just pray with them and talk to them? So everyone stand and sing this song with us.